Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. You'll notice it's the passage that we are looking at this morning is the same one that Mike read earlier, so this time you can listen intently as I read it. The Gospel of Luke is probably the more popular birth narrative that we read during Christmas time. I know our family gatherings, that's the version we read, Luke 2. That comes more from Mary's perspective. Gabriel appears to Mary and Mary uh, receives this news that she is favored among women. This passage in Matthew is more from Joseph's angle, from his perspective of how the birth narrative unfolds. This is most likely because Matthew is emphasizing the line of David here, and Joseph being from the line of David, and Jesus being the rightful king. So we have this shorter account, but it is packed, packed with important, important information for us. Revelation about our Lord and Savior. So here now as I read God's holy word, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quick, quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. O oh Lord, the account that we have just read is filled with profound meaning and implications for all of mankind. When it happened, it was largely unnoticed, but now, upon reflection for these past centuries, we realize the coming of Christ to be the most important event in history. Please, O oh Lord, give us a renewed and refreshed love for Christ as we consider this passage today, especially today. May it resonate in a way that we have not previously experienced. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by the truth. I pray this in Christ. Amen. As our family has grown older, uh, we find ourselves spread more geographically. We can't be together physically nearly as much as we used to. Now, I remember when we were a younger family, and many of our younger families will you know, appreciate this, we had a lot of time together in close confines, maybe too much time in physical proximity with each other. And it can be tiring. You need a break sometimes. But as you grow older and your kids go their various separate ways, you just don't get to see each other as much, there becomes nothing more precious than time spent with each other. And I mean in proximity. It's great that we have these technologies that allow us to stay connected. There's probably not one day that goes by in the year that I don't text or get a text from one of my children. So I feel connected but they're not with us. 
They're not with us physically like they are now. I can't wait for this. After the Christmas Eve service, from the end of that service all the way tomorrow, we'll just sit there and be with each other and enjoy it. It'll be a time uh, that's special like any other, uh, compared to any other time. To be with one another in that kind of physical proximity, there's something really content about that. It's something that gives me probably the most joy I experience right now in this life, is that kind of time spent with people you love, people closest to you. I hope to some degree that's true in your church family, that you look forward to being with each other physically, uh, in proximity with each other. I believe this desire, this sense we get, comes from being created in the image of God. Um, God himself, before he created anything, was in triunity. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had fellowship with one another. And in some mysterious way, I think that it's probably true that who we are as human beings reflects some kind of that fellowship. And we need that fellowship um, with God first and foremost, and then with each other by extension. That's how God designed us. Of course, when sin entered, that relationship with God was breached. We're in an awful way with God because of that. And that means our relationship with each other is messed up too. We can't rightly be related with each other when we're not rightly related with God. So the mission of Jesus, for all the many things he did do and accomplish, it comes down to breaching this relationship or bringing together that breached relationship that we had with God the Father. That then allows us to have real relationships with each other. His mission was to bring us back to God. We were separated, alienated from him, and therefore messed up with everybody around us. But now we have opportunity to be right with each other because we can be right with God. And this is what Jesus provides in the mission he gives, or he comes and accomplishes. Disrupted relationships all across the board brought back together by Christ. And it comes to this concept of fellowship with God and then fellowship with each other. In verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Nothing is more comforting than this idea of being in fellowship with God, in close fellowship with him, God being with us. This gives us great courage, great encouragement, contentment, stability to know that God is with us. For there to be a healing of that breach, it would take an act of God. And this is the beginning of that act of God in time and space when Jesus comes as a human being. A restoration of the magnitude necessary would have to be accomplished by God himself. And that's what we witness. You know, the foreshadowings of God providing this in reality are throughout the whole of the Bible. The whole message of the Bible builds us towards realizing we can be with God again in harmony. We don't any longer have to be at odds with him where he's our enemy because of our sins against him. That can be healed. That can be reconciled. And God will do this himself by coming and paying the price in the form that the sin was committed as a human being. But long before Jesus comes, we have these glimpses of what it would be like to have God with us. Early in the New Test or Old Testament, we have the promise of God being with his people consistent. By the time we come to Isaac and he is called to do something, to go to a place he didn't know, the Lord spoke to Isaac and said, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands. The assurance that Isaac gets 
to obey comes from knowing God would be with him. Of course, to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This concept of God being with his people, it's replete in the Old Testament. It's when you sense the people of God readying to do something significant because the Lord is with them. It says in Genesis 39, and then later in 41, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, God being with his people. Moses, when he was called to lead the Israelites out of slavery, he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said to him, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. God with us. This is a theme that is heavy in the Old Testament. It's building up to this climactic point we find ourselves in Deuteronomy. Be strong and courageous. Why? The Lord your God goes with you. In Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave or forsake you. Isaiah 41, long after Moses, but still long before Christ came. Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now all these promises are completely true. And they're mostly spiritual realities, which are real. But the actual physical presence of God, how would that be accomplished? And now we come to the passage where this is unveiled. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Anyone hearing this name would hearken back to all those prefigurements of God with his people and all that happened when he was with his people. But now God himself will come in proximity to us. He'll actually come. So the restoration of the breached relationship between God and man would be accomplished by this act of God that we have in these verses before us, at least the beginning of it. In these eight verses, we have a short text, but we have much to learn. We'll see together the birth of Jesus itself, the great reconciler between God and man arrives. We'll also learn of the mission of Christ. In these short verses, just by the names he has, Jesus and Emmanuel, we'll see what it is that he will accomplish. We'll also learn about the person of Christ. An act of God to reconcile would require the God-man to do it, and that's who Jesus is. Look first with me at the birth of Christ itself, starting in verse 18. We're introduced to Jesus, the great reconciler between God and man. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Matthew's being careful to root this event in the framework of history, not mythology. The birth of Jesus took place this way. History here. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he was found to... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Betrothal in this era and in this culture was the first official step to finally legalizing marriage. It wasn't marriage yet, but it was getting very close. Households were being aligned. uh, Families were being aligned. Uh, They didn't live together yet, but things were being prepared. They were almost there. It was going to happen. Um, They were 
a pledge to one another. But it says here, in that state, before they came to the final legalizing of the marriage, Mary was found to be pregnant. Yes, it was by the Holy Spirit, but certainly Joseph didn't know this when it first happened. Now, we want to be clear. The Bible's absolutely clear that this is a virgin birth that happens. A virgin conceived a child, and it was done supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Of course, this would cause great problems for both Mary and Joseph. Again, this text is coming from the angle of Joseph. So let's consider that a little bit. Verse 18 again. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now appreciate for a moment, in those days, under the law, the punishment for infidelity, even in betrothal, was severe. Very severe. So this revelation about Mary would send Joseph to all kinds of trials in his mind and heart. What did this mean across the board? It says in verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just or righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, which is what would have happened, even legally would have happened, when she was found out, he resolved to divorce her quietly. didn't want her to be brought out into the open with this. Now, for a moment, let's consider the order of events, because I think that's helpful. Before Joseph finds out, we know from Luke that the angel Gabriel visits Mary to let her know she will become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. A young woman, very young woman, being told this. Listen to what it says in Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, as anyone would be if an angel arrived. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now what does that mean? If this, she knows she's going to be married. Maybe she's thinking it's just a forecast. But the angel continues, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel repeats the words of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. I'm sure Mary, even as a a young woman, would, would have some connection with what he's saying here, who this is going to be. And Mary said to the angel, but how will this be? Since I am a virgin, there's no mistake about her state. And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be, will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Imagine the, the sense of overwhelmingness she would have at this moment receiving this information for many reasons. Just the shock of what he just said, and then the fact that she's engaged, and she has a man she loves, and looks forward to having a family with, and she's got to tell him. Maybe at first she thought, of course he'll believe me. when I, He believes me about everything I would say. That's why they're getting married. And so I'm going to go and tell Joseph. He no, she, no, doubts, no doubt goes and tells Joseph exactly what happened. This angel spoke to me. This is what happened. Now, maybe it didn't happen right away. Maybe it took a while when she realized she was pregnant because there wasn't the the means to figure that out right away. You will become pregnant. Then when she does realize she's pregnant, then she goes to Joseph and tells. I don't know the order of it. 
But Joseph has had some time to think about this, and there's no way he can get himself to believe that she was telling the truth. And nobody would. No one would expect this to be the truth. He's torn. He knows he loves this woman and trusts her, but she had to have cheated on him. It had to be that way. Yet the laws are brutal for something like this. So he's hurt by it. He can't understand why she keeps saying this. The whole thing is tearing him apart, but he knows if he brings this out in the open, she will be terribly, terribly harmed. J.C. Ryle said he saw the appearance of evil, but did nothing rashly. I think, by the way, this is a good example for us. When we come across something that we think is wrong, uh, to not be rash in our reaction, to go slow on this. He just couldn't believe it. It was impossible. It says in verse 20, but as he considered these things, imagine what that looked like, the, the weeks of considering these things. What is this that has come upon me, he's thinking. As he's considering it, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, and notice the address. He's called the son of David. Uh, This is going to help teach him his role in Jesus' life. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not fear shows how he was feeling. His love for her stopped him from being vengeful or vindictive. Being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But now the word of the Lord has come to him and confirmed the truth about it. And now that he knows the truth from God, even if people in the world won't believe it, he can obey. That's a great example for us. Even though the world around us might not agree with the word of God, when the word of God is clear to us, we can obey it. And Joseph knows he can And he does what's right from that point forward, despite what the murmurings would be, because of course other people won't believe it. God builds our our faith by various means, and we should respond with obedience, especially when he is so clear in his word, as he was so clear to Joseph here through the revelation that the angel gave in the dream. Now I want you to notice verse 21, because this is a pivotal passage in these verses. This provides for us in a very simple, profound way, the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and the purpose for his coming summed up in just one verse. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, are given. Jesus means Savior, or God saves. Joshua. Emmanuel, God with us. The Savior God is with us. That's Jesus' mission, to save. He's come to save. It speaks of his mission. You will call his name salvation. He will save his people from their sins. Now, we might ask the question, we should ask the question, well, who are his people that he saves from their sins? Well, we don't have to look far in Jesus' teaching because he makes it very clear as he's walking through his earthly ministry. John chapter 10 might be the best place to answer the question, who are his people that he's come to save? In John 10, he's giving the analogy of a shepherd and his sheep, and he uses the door language and gate language. But I think as you hear Jesus speak, you'll gather in its full context who his people are. So Jesus again said to them, John 10, 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, He's setting up the fact 
that the religious leaders had been leading the people astray about salvation for some time. Most people thought it was, if you were Jewish and if you followed Jewish rules, you would be right with God. Just do this, and then, and then that made them very powerful, because they had the answers to everything. But Jesus points out that these are not real, these aren't really the people you go to for salvation. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, he says. But the sheep did not listen to them, meaning those who were his didn't actually follow them. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He came to save them. Well, who? I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays his his life down for who? For the sheep. Who, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He's casting the religious leaders in that light. Then he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So who are his people? They will know him. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will also listen to my voice. So he's speaking primarily to a Jewish people. But they're not all his people. He says that. Those who hear his voice and know his voice and follow him, that's how you'll know they are his people, his sheep. And it won't be just them. There will be others outside of the sheepfold of Israel who will then also hear and come. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For there is this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down. He is saying that his people are the sheep that God has given him and he will pay for their sins. There will be some there in his immediate context. Some will come. Those of us who have come since were part of that. How do you know? Do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? That's how you know if you're his people. That His death was perfectly applicable for his people. He didn't lose any of them. It accomplished exactly what he intended to accomplish. So when we read, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It wasn't hypothetical. He will do it absolutely and for sure. And how do you know who God's people are? I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Go to him. Go to Christ. Come to Christ. That's how you know if you're his people. You wouldn't come to Christ. You wouldn't believe in Christ if you weren't his people. Jesus is certainly a teacher, a sage, a prophet. And we're right to think of him as Lord and King. He is. But his main identity as it concerns us is he's our Savior. We are lost in sin. We are condemned in sin. We must have salvation from our condemnation and our pending judgment. And he is anointed to be our Savior. Salvation, that's what he brings. In recent years, there have been pictures that have come out that were taken back on 9-11 
so many years ago. And these pictures, I don't know how it's possible now. They're higher resolution than they were even the last 15 years. And I've seen some in recent weeks even that were so vivid, they were shocking. One such picture of the South Tower that got hit between the 77th floor and the 85th floor, that gaping hole. You can all picture it in your mind. You've seen it many times, as have I. And you see the steel beams hanging there with debris hanging off, stuff coming out, flames in the background, black smoke coming out. But these recent pictures are shocking. One that I just saw zooms in so close that you could see a woman sitting on the edge, edge of the window that's blown away. She's looking down to certain death there, and in back there's flames and smoke coming. There is no salvation. That's what she needs as a savior. And there was nothing coming for her. Nothing came for her. That's what we need. That's our situation. And Christ comes to save us from our sins. We get the salvation. That's Jesus' main role. That's what he came for. You will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, which means salvation. And he will save his people from what? From their sins. You know, our elder Bob Raymond's dad, Dr. Robert Raymond, really one of the great Reformed theologians of recent times, wrote volumes and volumes about God and about Christ and about theology, about the New Testament, wrote and wrote and wrote, spoke and spoke and spoke. Even wrote a book over 700 pages long on systematic theology. What do you think he would think would be the best way to describe Jesus, a man with that many volumes? Well, if you go to his memorial stone, guess what it says on it? And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what's on his stone. Because that's what it comes down to. If you've been complicating who Jesus is, come back to this basic mission statement about Christ. He came to save people from their sins, to reconcile us with God so we could be with God, and so we can then have a reconciled relationship with each other. You know, the angels could have said, Joseph, your son's going to be a miracle worker. Your son will be a great teacher. Your son will confound men twice his age. Your son will show incredible compassion. He will heal people that no one else could heal. He's going to give eyesight to people who are blind. Your son's reputation will explode through this region. No, that's not what he tells Joseph that he should look forward to. Call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. How do you know you're one of his people? Are you a sinner? Do you know you have sinned and God is justified to hold you accountable for that sin? Do you think Jesus is of the quality to save you? If you believe that Jesus' life and death and resurrection is for you, it's sufficient for you, that's how you know. Finally, I want you to notice what the passage teaches us, at least in part. This is a profound, deep reality. The person of Christ. It would take an act of God to reconcile, and it takes the God-man himself. That Jesus himself is God. God with us, verse 23. That's what the passage teaches us about the person of Christ. Now, we do well to heed J.C. Ryle's counsel when we start to plumb the depths of the deity the divinity of Jesus Christ. His humanity and his deity. Ryle said, let us not attempt to explain things which are above our feeble reason. Let us be content to believe with reverence and not speculate about matters which we cannot understand. It is enough for us to know that with him who made the world, nothing is impossible. 
So we should take it at the face value that is, is described. Plumb the depths a bit, but be careful. Be humble in, the, in our approach. What we have in verse 22 and verse 23 is a recollection of what Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ came in Isaiah 7. The prophecy, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This won't be like other prophets, priests, and kings. They were not God with us. This is God who is coming in the form of a man. She'll have a son, it will be God. It's enough for us to see this to be the pervasive teaching of the Bible, that Jesus is God, the God-man. Perfect man as well as perfect God. He became man in order to pay for man's sins in the form that they were committed. In fact, this is what's so helpful from the Belgic Confession in chapter chapter 20. The Confession says, We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just, sent his Son to assume that nature in which the disobedience was committed. That's why he came as a man, as a person. Because people committed the sin against God. He comes in that form to pay the price on our behalf, to represent us perfectly, to make satisfaction in the same as the way the confession says it, and to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. God becomes man for this purpose. It's probably the biggest mystery of redemption to understand how this could be so. But it's important, it's essential for us as we understand who Jesus is. Understanding that Jesus is God gives us a strength of faith as we pray to him, as we rely upon him, as we rest upon him to know that he's strong to save because he is God. Now, understanding that Jesus is man gives us comfort because he sympathizes with us. He understands what we are going through. Powerful to save, human to understand. God with us. Now, circling back to what you hopefully will get to enjoy with your family during this time. Be careful not to take your time together with those you love for granted. Fellowship with each other is a gift from God. I say, and I think with biblical backing, that true fellowship with each other is purest and most powerful when we are at peace with God first fellowship with God, and then we can have fellowship with each other. Can I just say, because I know this happens every time we have holidays, if you're a believer, get things right with your family if they're hanging. If you say you got fellowship with God, and there's some reason you don't have it with each other, and it's your fault, go back to the fellowship you have with God. And let this be a season of truly experiencing the contentment that comes from a pure fellowship that's only experienced by those who've had their sins forgiven and then can forgive other people's sins. There's just nothing more powerful on this earth than that kind of fellowship. There's a contentment that will come from your gatherings and your time together when we're no longer separated from God. Do you know that the purpose of our liturgy is not to give a break at the passing of the peace? It's actually because of the buildup of the service. We go from very serious um, confrontation with who God is and a realization that in our sin we really cannot stand in his presence. So we need to hear the word of the gospel and have our, we need to confess and then 
having a word of assurance. Once we're reminded of this, that our reconciliation with God has been made true through Christ, now we can have peace with each other. And so symbolically, the passing of the peace is that moment when we all realize we are right with God through Christ. Now we can be right with each other. That's the purpose of it. It's a picture of what our lives should be like together. The sweet fellowship that we enjoy like this took an act of God. Enjoy all the features of the days that come ahead, the enjoyment you have, but realize that all of that is purchased by an act of God. Jesus becoming man. I love all the hymns of the Advent season. There's a few, there are a few, though, that accent the nearness of God in his deity. Many of the songs emphasize or proclaim his deity, but they don't all, like some of the hymns I'd mentioned, draw our attention to the nearness we have with God. Angels from the realms of glory, shepherds in the fields abiding, watching over your flocks by night. God with man is now residing. He's come. He's with us. Yonder shines the infant light. There's a, yes, he's God and he's with us. Come and worship. That's the response. Worship Christ. Come all ye faithful, we sang earlier. God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. He's willing to come and be with us. He'll come by the means that it takes to come. He, he wants to be with us. Very God, begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. Adore him because he is God and the God who is with us. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. This is the line. Pleased as man with men to dwell. He's pleased to do this. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God with us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the clarity of your word on the fronts that we have been discovering or looking at afresh today. Lord Jesus, your willingness to be with us, to come be with us and to save us. I pray, O Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here gathered, that they would be refreshed in the reconciliation that is theirs through Jesus. For those who may not know you, that they would be struck now by their need for the Savior, Jesus, who is Christ the Lord. Pray, God, that you would be blessed and you would be honored and glorified in this time of worship and in all of the events that will happen in the next day or two as we spend it with family. Spend it thinking, at least in part, that all this has been purchased by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to respond very